I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Almost Famous, the podcast where I meet other people who grew up with famous family members and discuss how that has affected their journeys through life. As this is the last episode in Series 1 of the podcast, we thought we'd do things a little differently. A lot of people have commented that they'd like to hear a bit more about my own experience of growing up around fame. So today, I'm going to be the interviewee, and we'll hand over the interviewer's microphone to comedian, author, screenwriter, and television presenter David Baddiel. David was a member of the Cambridge Footlights before finding fame after university in the Mary Whitehouse experience on the BBC. David and Rob Newman then became the first stand-up comedians to sell out Wembley Arena with their show Newman and Baddiel Live and in Pieces. Next, David teamed up with Frank Skinner and created the seminal soccer-based comedy TV show Fancy Football. They then went on to do the show Baddiel and Skinner Unplanned on ITV and together twice topped the UK singles charts with their football anthem Three Lions, co-written and performed with The Lightning Seeds. David has written four novels and in 2015 published the first of four children's books too. He also created BBC Radio 4 comedy panel shows Heresy and Don't Make Me Laugh and has recently made a return to the stage with stand-up shows including the critically acclaimed Fame, Not the Musical, My Family, Not the Sitcom and his upcoming tour, Trolls, Not the Dolls. I've had to miss out so much more, so it's fair to say he's a very busy man. David, thank you so much for coming. How are you? Uh, I'm all right. Um, So you missed out. A number of key points there. Uh, number one, we play football together. Uh, yeah. And that's how we know each other. It's, it's true. not really just that you've read about me on the internet and well, I can cut and paste <laughs> that stuff, some of which is wrong, actually. Oh, good. Uh, notably, we've chopped the charts four times with Three Liars, which is very important because it's the only song ever to do that. Um, and there was something else that was wrong. That I know. Oh, yes, I've written six children's novels. Children's novels. Uh, but I think that's, that's interesting, though, uh, Barney, because I think that one of the things about fame, which we can perhaps talk about later, is that fame involves people getting you wrong. Yeah, It always involves people getting you wrong. And when I did my show Fame, <laughs> Not the Musical, that was sort of what it was about. It was about how people you know, got me wrong in a thousand ways, including thinking I was Ian Brodie or thinking that I was Ben Elton. Um, and uh, I think it was Erica Young, the writer, who said, the more famous you are, the more people will get you wrong. Yeah. Uh, and even someone who knows me very well, like yourself, has managed <laughs> to do that in the opening bit. But I think that's good. I think that, that shows her what a dodgy old business fame is. It does. And one thing I'd say that I've noticed about famous people is that they're very quick to tell you if you've got something wrong. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Particularly if the thing is less success. Yeah, exactly. And I should say a lot of that 
uh, bio came from your own website. Oh, no. And secondly... I shall be onto them and people uh, will be sacked. And secondly, the other thing that happens a lot with famous people is that they really will get to you before you have a chance to go on to your next bit, which is the question <laughs> I have here. Which, <laughs> well, the thing the I have here, which is I should say that David and I have worked together a few times over the years and that we play football together and you're friends with my stepfather, Angus Deaton, which is why... I asked you if you'd be willing to do this interview, and I'm, I'm interested to know um, how you felt when I did ask you that. Um, well, I thought it was a good idea, this podcast. Um, oh. I think people are fascinated by fame, uh, and I think there is a thing about living around fame which is unexplored and which you're doing in this podcast. So, uh, in all honesty, I just thought it was an interesting idea, and I, I was happy to be involved with it from that point of view. But I also... Uh, I have known you for quite a long time. Uh, I, I can't... I mean, I, would it be true to say I've known you since you were a child? Or since you were a teenager, certainly. When did you come back to playing football? Well, so yeah, so I, I don't think... When I first played in the, the football match, so we play a, a Tuesday night football match with a bunch of uh, comedians, and it's been running for about 35 years. I first played in that game when I was about 11 or 12, but I don't think you were playing then, because that was about 1991, 1992. Mm, it might have been. Um, I think I would remember you. That's why right. I don't think so. But I came back about 10 years later, so when I was in my early 20s. Mm. So it will have been about 2003, something like that. So, right, yeah, okay. so I don't really about... know you as a child, but I knew of you because Angus used to talk about you uh, with enormous fondness. And at that time, Angus didn't have a biological child, which he does now. Mm -hmm. And I was always interested in that because... Um, Angus is a very reserved man. I mean, we'll get on to this, mm. but he's a very reserved man, doesn't really talk about his emotions. Uh, and he clearly became quite emotional when talking about you. And I think then I didn't know you. Uh, and then you came to play football. And I, I, <laughs> you're like, why, it, why is he getting so fucking emotional? <laughs> well, 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 one thing about you, which we can get onto as well, is, you know, you're quite, uh, you know, I, I think this is fair to say your sense of humour is quite dark, you know, and you're and sometimes quite hard and cruel in a good way. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you didn't seem like, oh, he's this lovely, soft hearted child mm. that Angus is sort of painting here. But perhaps mm. we'll get onto all that. And what we we should begin with going back to your early life. Yeah. So who? So it's not just Angus, is it? Their fame was in your family well before him. Tell us about your other family. That's right. And um, just before I go on to my mum and my dad, I'll say for people, just so, because we've just talked about him so much. I mean, if you listen to the trail of this podcast, you'll know that my stepdad was Angus Deaton, but we should talk. Angus Deaton, the uh, famous television presenter slash actor. But um, yes, as you say, uh, my mum and my dad were both musicians. My dad was uh, uh, in a band from Liverpool in the 60s called The Mojos. Mm. And uh, tell us, I don't. I I've got a vague idea because mm. I think I've mentioned them on my podcast about <laughs> David Bowie because you hooked me up with some old mate of your dad or mum's who had briefly known David Bowie. I can't remember. If she's no, there. it was my dad's first wife who you spoke to on your podcast. <laughs> right, okay, I forgot that. <laughs> her name well, is Jeanette. Yes, Jeanette. And you yeah. spoke to her. Yes, I mean, she's lovely and lives in Spain. Uh, now, okay, <laughs> so she, I think, told me a bit more about the Mojos, but they're not a band who most people listening will know, but how big were they? Uh, they had, like, a number nine hit right. uh, called Everything's Alright, which then David Bowie went on to cover on pinups. Wow. Which is, yeah, without doubt, one of the kind of coolest things that I say most regularly when I talk about my dad. So your dad's name? His name is Stuart Slater. Yeah. His stage name was Stu James, and right. they were a kind of a Mersey Beat uh, four-piece called the Mojos. Um, 
not as successful as you the know some, some more famous <laughs> Liverpudlian bands. Mm. But yeah, they they did all the tours. They went to Hamburg. They did you know they were they were pretty successful regularly in the uh, in the Melody Maker and the Enemy and stuff. And um, yeah, had a couple of hits. And then after that, he went eventually into A and R and worked as uh, head of publishing at Chrysalis back right. in, towards the eighties and stuff like That's, that. But when when were you born? I was born in nineteen eighty. Right, so you being born, did that coincide with him giving up being a rock star and going into A&R, or had that already happened? No, it had, it had already happened with kind of a pause where he wasn't, he was kind of between jobs. So there was definitely a time where he went off on a cruise and was a, a kind of a DJ on a cruise ship for a while, and right. that was with his first wife. Okay. Um, so lo- lots of stuff before I was born, and then when I was born it coincided with him getting into A&R and stuff like that. Okay. But in terms of who he was as a person, I would say very much... Of the, um, I should have been more famous than I was. I should have been more successful than I was. Always slightly chasing that level of fame by trying to sign bands, hanging out with bands, being very much the cool dad who all your friends, when you met them, was like, oh, I wish when he, when they met him, I wish he was my dad, kind of thing. Right, but very importantly in all this, your mum mm. was also famous, and mm-hmm. I would say arguably, although I don't know in the 60s how big the Mojos were in these terms, but certainly now, I would say your mum, for people of a certain age, would certainly be more well-known. Tell us about your mum. Yeah, so my mum, I'd say, was um, almost the perfect description of a one-hit wonder, but had a very big hit at number two with a song called Born With A Smile On My Face, which I think you remember. from Totally remember. 1975. The reason that was a hit is because she was uh, an actress and got a role on Crossroads Mm. as playing a singer... And they, they wrote this song for her appearance in Crossroads. And your mum's name is? Stephanie de Sykes. Yeah. And yeah. for those of you young at home, uh, Crossroads was basically, you know, a, a, soap, a soap opera. opera. A soap opera set in a motel in Birmingham. Yeah. Somewhere like that. Yeah. And was famously creaky. Um, and I believe Victoria was Acorn Antiques, for anyone who knows. That <laughs> sketch was based on Crossroads, really. Yeah. Uh, the walls often looked like they might crumble at any stage. And there was a character called Benny who had a woolly hat who became <laughs> a huge figure in certain people's comedy universes. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Stephanie de Sykes' I Was Born With A Smile On My Face, mm. it was a big song, yeah. I would say. In my mind it might have been a Eurovision, but it never was. No, but my mum and my dad wrote Eurovision entries together. Uh, with any success? Uh, they One of their songs came second one year. Okay, not in, in Eurovision or in the in, in song for Europe? No, in Eurovision. Oh, they, right. wrote, they wrote a load. So who, who did they write that for? Uh, the band were called Prima Donna. Right. Uh, the band were called Prima <laughs> this Donna. This is when? What year is this? This will have been mid to late late seventies. I would wow. think. Wow. Do, I've, do, I've do actually you know been what doing, the song's called? David, I've actually been doing lots of prep to try and get my timelines right. But bear in mind, this is all before I was born, so I'm, okay. I'm very willing for people to correct me. But um, the song was called. I think the song was called Love Enough for Two. Right. But I could be wrong, but it's Prima Do- Prima Donna, and. Um, yeah, so that that I think came second. Uh, my mum will definitely be correcting me if I'm wrong. Mm. Uh, but they all they used to write loads and loads of songs together. That was a huge part of their relationship. They met because my dad worked for the record company that signed my mum. Oh, I see. You're right. right. So he A and R'd your mum. In essence, he A and R'd my mum, and she she. That's not what, a euphemism, by the way. No, I know. But <laughs> she, he A and R'd the fuck out of her, basically, <laughs> and um, he uh, she. I've only I have a relationship with my dad. I've always had a relationship with my dad. Um, where we've never discussed anything serious. He's very much of that older generation where, Hmm. you know, you don't talk about serious things with your children. And also, we didn't live together, really. So um, all of the stories I have, in fact, about 
apart from about the stories I have about my mum or the relationship with my mum, are basically second-hand from my mum. Right. Uh, or the press. So before we get into all that, yeah. I must just tell you a connection I have, which is that um, as you mentioned Frank Skinner there. And I think before I was working with Frank, but I think I was already friendly with him, and he may even have been renting a room in my flat, um, he was in a show called Packet of Three. And uh, he used to sing I Was Born With A Smile On My Face at the opening of every episode of Packet of Three. Uh, <laughs> and it was a very... Correct song for Frank Skinner. Uh, what channel time. was that on? I don't know that Channel show. 4, I think. Right. Uh, it was him and Henry Norman and Jenny Eclair, and it was a sort of half sitcom, half variety show thing set in an old music hall. Uh, but yeah, I was very aware of, of that song. It's a very upbeat song. Well, it really, I hope it, my mum got the PRS for that, uh, most importantly. Certainly, yeah, I very much <laughs> hope so too. That probably went towards my private education. Yeah. So when was I was born with a smile on a face? 75. 75. 1975. Yeah, and, it, and back, back in the day, it doesn't happen now, but back in the day, you know, a song would enter the charts and then keep rising. So it kind of, it started in, I think, in like the, the teens and then went up to five and then went up to two. And I think, uh, you know, that's when, uh, because I think in the end, it was actually written by uh, Simon May, who wrote the EastEnders theme tune. All right. Um, but I think they kind of kept her role going a bit longer. On, on Crossroads. Of, on Crossroads. Because, because she of, was now a star. Because it was happening like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, what else was your mum in before that, do you know? She was in a film called Side by Side with Terry Thomas, All right. which uh, we used to watch a lot as kids, but was absolutely shite. I will say also my mum, on behalf of my mum, she thinks Born With A Smile On My Face just the worst song ever committed uh, to tape. I really don't agree. I really you're a like lover it. of you're a lover of pop, aren't you? Very, I really like pop. Yeah, yeah it's I, very. I, I poppy. think it's. I mean, honestly, I want to hear it now. It, but <laughs> it, you know what it does? It puts a smile on my face. <laughs> it's very, very cheesy, <laughs> but does exactly what it says on the tin. You know, yeah. and she was a very, she was a very attractive, very smiley, happy woman. And if you watch the the music video of it, it's it's you know it's easy to see why people. It's very catchy. Did she? I can't remember. You've told me this or not? Whether she after the success of that she became a pop star I mean how many other t- songs did she have well the other thing she was doing around the time was she was a, a regular on That's Life was she yeah she was a regular on That's Life every wow. week on That's Life she would end by uh, she'd come out at the end singing a song and stuff wow. like that see I don't remember that but now you say it yes I do yeah yeah. it's one of those things that yeah. I mean for those so of you so she was in standards at the end of That's Life how would you describe That's Life That's Life when I was growing up was uh, presented by Esther Ranson was kind of almost often kind of um you know, justice warrior-y type stuff. Well, actually, and- I have in my time tried to uh, reboot That's Life uh, because there's a thing <laughs> I really like about That's Life. So if anybody doesn't know, it's probably mainly remembered, I think wrongly, for uh, being a kind of watchdog-style show where mm. they would often take up, you know, so-and-so's had a sofa that exploded and we go and sort <laughs> this out. right? But that was actually not the great part of it. The great part of it was, in a way, prefiguring the modern internet would be to do little quizzical things that would sort of become meme so very famously they went off and found a dog for example that could say sausages yeah. it obviously couldn't I really what remember was, that video what it yeah. said was sausages right? and, <laughs> and when it was, you know, he was the owner was kind of rubbing its neck and, went, yeah. right? and that became that was huge at the time and I think still now if you went on YouTube it would have a lot of it <laughs> yeah. so they had a lot of that kind of like here's a weird thing we've just found kind of real life found comedy in it mm. and uh, it was an odd show in that none of them were comedians apart from this very strange looking chap called Cyril Fletcher who was on it but I I've sort of very, very more than half forgotten that there was a singer on it and there was your yeah. mum, but now it feels, yeah. There yeah, was. so I have a very 
visceral vision of of her in a field full of daffodils singing a very cheesy song to play out the show. So, so it she, wasn't a studio thing. She, sometimes were... in the studio and sometimes wow. some, either that or they were very realistic Amazing. daffodils in the studio. Um, so she was doing that and then she uh, she got very easily into voiceovers, jingles. Right. And um, also my brother was telling me this. Uh, she did a lot of backing vocals mm. and for quite uh, for some quite big disco stuff that's since been resampled and resampled, some stuff like Demis Roussos stuff, mm. um, and uh, apparently to to a lot of people who love those old disco classics and the and the the uh, sampling of those, she's kind of quite well talked about in those circles. But for me, I don't know a lot about that. So for me, it's um, more she had that hit in 1975. She did a lot of jingles, a lot of voiceovers. When I was growing up, I kind of grew up. With the tape of her her jingle showreel in the but car and stuff on, like that, like the two Ronnies, for example, mm-hmm. would say, and now Barbara Dixon or something like that, and Barbara Dixon would come and sing a song from Evita or something. She's the kind of woman who would occasionally be on a show like that as well. Yeah, I don't, I, I think I'd know if she'd been on the two Ronnies, but um, yeah, she, seen she did it, lots of lots of appe- appearances like that. Like yeah, yeah variety sure. show. Yeah. One of the things about the seventies, which people may not know who are listening, is that pop stars. I mean, your mum didn't have this, but it was very common. People like Scylla or Cliff would have their own show, yeah. which would mainly be singing with a bit of terrible banter in between the mm-hmm. singing. That's mm-hmm. what it would be. Mm-hmm. And those kind of variety shows were. And I would imagine your mum would have been on the edge of having something. I can imagine a show called. Stephanie, with your mum in it, <laughs> doing the odd bit of banter with, you know, I feel like if, Peter Purvis, yeah. and then going into a song. I feel like if uh, my mum had had a show called Stephanie, then maybe I'd be a homeowner now, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately not. Yeah. But um, there are things I know, there's, so, uh, you know, we definitely have both seen the uh, Top of the Pops episode where she quite creepily gets introduced by, is it Mark Bolan? Yes. Yes. Do yes. you remember and that clip? Yes, we discussed this, Yeah, because it looks like Mark Bolan has had a thing with your mum. Yeah. And, and frankly, if that's the case, you should be proud. Yeah, I would be I mean, that's I an inch away from proud. it happening with David Bowie. I mean, Mark Boland, you know, he was so cool. The thing with my mum is, so, you know, we're talking about this now, she'll listen to this and she'll say, absolutely, of course not. But the reality with my mum is, lover as I do, she would also potentially tell me that if she had. Right. She's very much, she's very, I know from, you know, there are, there are stories I have from my, you know, my, my teenage years where I know that something happened and then she's lied to me about it because she likes to come across as this kind of quite innocent, yeah. you know, um, you know, uh, innocent, I think, is the right word. And, yeah. I, and I dare say with my mum, there was a, a fair amount of non-innocence. Yeah. I mean, I know this podcast doesn't include clips, but if it would be good to have an audio clip of it because my memory is it's literally Mark Boland saying something like, and now a, se- a really sexy chick, I really love her. It's that kind of thing, isn't it? In my head, it's more like, it's, and next, Stephanie just like, But maybe we will play it in. We'll see how. Yeah. We'll see if we've got okay, enough time. Okay, so let's talk about you for mm. a minute because, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, there's so much to talk about and I want to get on to your step dad uh, before it's too late but how did you feel how what was it like for you growing up around your mum being on that's life around your mum uh you know i know her big hit was passed but you know mm. that that's life was passed as well okay and eurovision was as well actually. so, so okay, my- well that's a particular type of fame then yeah. so other people you've had on this show uh feel like they might have a, a more live version of fame in mm-hmm. the sense that you know you've interviewed people who are definitely living with parents who are still really famous you know uh, someone like Asda Campbell when you interviewed Grace Campbell Asda Campbell st- still a current figure in culture often on the telly mm. but your your mum wasn't by the time you were old enough to understand what that meant no but very much everybody else who I was around knew her as having been this famous person so I'd say that my my recollection of my childhood years was very much like and the one I always use is my teachers telling me how they had posters of my mum on their wall and stuff like that and just and just kind of 
finding it normal, not even finding it awkward at the time, really, just finding it normal. And then in years, you know, years on with hindsight, thinking, oh, that's quite a bit of, that's quite a weird situation. And then also just weird stuff that about the, the people that we would, I mean, Angus, you know, to move on to him, but not on purpose, but Angus met my mum in 1983 when I was mm. only two. Right. So the reality is of my, my childhood life is that Angus was pretty much always in. I don't have any recollection of living with my dad who'd left my mum or who my mum had thrown out not long before. So um, right. it was kind of a mixture. It was kind of a mixture of, I, I'd say in those early years, just knowing that there was kind of, it was just all talking about music and pop stars and Eurovision and, and okay. fame to some degree, I think. What's really fascinating in your story is, so you had a dad who you feel always wanted to be more famous. You know, arguably, who knows, maybe part of the problem with him and your mum was, you know, your mum was basically more famous than your dad and maybe that was a problem, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that either. I've never really thought about that. I think the the, the problem with my dad and my mum really was that my dad got into doing coke in right, a really okay. huge way. Okay, but, you know, there might still be reasons whereby he felt his life wasn't what it should be that led to that. Mm-hmm. But what I'm interested in is, so you have lots and lots of different levels of fame. You have a mum who was briefly very famous, and it sort of trickles into your early life. You have a dad who always wanted to be famous, and maybe was briefly a long time before you were born, but is now maybe bitter at not being. And then you have a stepdad who becomes much more famous mm. as you're growing up. Because mm. Angus Deaton in 1983 was not a well-known person. No. And and when they met, my mum was very, very successful by doing jingles and voiceovers and earning a lot of money. Right. Uh, and Angus was... A uh, jobbing actor, really. He was a jobbing actor and, and the straight man in Rowan's one-man show, Rowan Atkinson's one-man show. And, yes, well, that's uh, one of the things we should perhaps say about Angus. So Angus was at uh, Oxford about the same time as sort of Richard Curtis mm-hmm. and Rowan Atkinson and all those people uh, and didn't come out of it as famous as they did. He, I think he's more or less the same age as them. Well, he is. So Richard... Richard uh, Angus had no interest in, in comedy or acting or anything, but Richard had someone drop out of a... Of the uh, Oxford Review, the review show two weeks before, and said to Angus, "Do you want to do it?" And they started writing scripts and stuff. Right. So that's how he got into that. Yeah, but Angus must have slightly himself been watching, particularly Rowan and Richard and and some other people who would have been in the Oxford Review, mm. uh, become really famous. And it wasn't happening for him quite a long time. You know, it, I mean, and uh, Angus, I, I think I had a sense of Angus. Uh, before Have I Got News For You on mm. being on a few things and I knew about Radioactive so yeah. for people who don't know Radioactive was a show that um, Angus did which is a sketch show uh, on the radio where they pretend to be in a terrible local radio station and that became KYTV mm-hmm. uh, which was a terrible local news station it was a really funny show yeah, uh, which was on BBC Two which was on BBC Two in the late 80s yeah kind of late 80s into the early 90s yeah, yeah. so by that so when is Angus when does he take the have I got news for you, Chair? So fortunately, I was reading up on this today. Okay. Um, so basically, uh, Angus talked about how he was pitching around Radioactive as a TV show for about 10 years. So it'd been very successful, kind of late 70s, early 80s on the radio. Mm. And he'd been trying to make it into TV and everyone had said no, said no. And then at the end of the 80s, um, suddenly there was a space on BBC Two to do something and they very quickly picked it up and uh, started making it. And then I think about two or three weeks before it was due to air for the first time, John Lloyd dropped out of presenting If I Got News For You and um, Angus was given the opportunity to do that. So right at the end of the 80s, kind of 89, right. 90. Right. Um, so my memory is 
because I became famous soon after that. My memory is that that show very quickly went through the roof mm. um, and at comedy awards and stuff, mm. Angus was always getting an award or, or, yeah, or, or he won. He won the 1991 Best Newcomer British Comedy Award, which I know because me and my brother were sat at home dialing because it was a public vote, pressing redial and redial to vote for him. Uh, and also he kind of quite famously said this is the you know quickest 14-year newcomer Is ever. it 1991? Yeah, I think so. So yeah. I think it's... I what, think I you won think that. you won it that year. I think oh, maybe that was the Radio Times one, maybe mm. the, the Comedy Awards. Actually, I think I was nominated. You're right. I was nominated for Comedy Award uh, Best Newcomer in 1991, but I won the Radio Times Best Newcomer with Rob Newman, and it was presented to me by Angus Deaton. <laughs> so all sorts of wheels within. And wheels were you bitter here. when you didn't win the Comedy Award? Uh, fairly bitter, I think. Yeah. But you know, I, I've been nominated for many, many, many more things <laughs> than I've ever won. So I just remain generally bitter <laughs> for being always the bridesmaid and never the bride. Uh, but okay, so. You by then are sorry. How ten. old are you? Ten. ten. Yeah. So how does it feel mm. to you that your stepdad? Actually, you know what? I think I need to ask the previous question, mm. which is, what was your relationship like with your stepdad? Yeah, really. The best way I can ever describe this is my whole family were musicians. Right. My brother, uh, who's two years older than me, was writing songs at three as well. And he obviously has more of a recollection of growing up with my dad. So they were playing the piano together and my brother was writing songs really early on. And it was kind of a, a you know, uh, just very incredibly talented, my brother, incredibly talented and, and brilliant What's musician. What's your brother's name again? Uh, Tobias. Tobias, yes. Um, He's br- played football as well. He's played for the No, he hasn't. Oh, I thought he, he couldn't, Maybe it's so, another Toby I'm thinking of. Yeah, there, there might be another Toby. Yeah. But um, so they were all musicians and I think, I think, it was, uh, you know, the reality is, is that I like football and comedy mm. and, um, you know, pop culture type stuff, films, TV, etc. And that's what Angus was into. And Angus came into my life when I was about two or three. And I don't think that's coincidence. We had a really close relationship. I think it was probably easier for him to develop a relationship with me because I wasn't in any way formed at that point. And yeah, he's, uh, you know, he was there from three to, to when I was about 12 or 12 or 13. Right. And so, although we... I That's never incredibly call, formative. Yeah, although I never called him dad, I would say he was my father figure, for sure. And he's the reason I am who I am with a, you know, with a sarcastic, slightly dark at times sense of humour. I think those things, I don't think those things are kind Just of your simple. home life, I think, needs a tiny bit of filling in here. You lived, didn't you, in a vicarage? Yeah, so um, when my mum and Angus met, my mum lived in a, a six-bedroom house, which she had previously shared with my dad, but she bought him out once they split up, which was in 1983. That was in Isha in Surrey, very right. lovely place. Right. And then um, Angus and my mum got together. Angus lived in a one-bedroom flat in Belsize Park, but spent most of his time at our place right. for the first year or two. Yeah. And then they broke up for a year or so, maybe a bit longer. And then when they got back together, which was in about 1986, they kind of decided to make a proper commitment, which was to buy a house together. So they bought this vicarage, which was in a place called Perford near near Woking in Surrey. And this was a, a you know a really huge but slightly run down uh, seven bedroom house on the top of a hill next to a church. Can I, I don't know if your mum will appreciate me saying this, but she's older than Angus. She is. She? She's she's. She's nine years older than Angus. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so he was, he was, he was. I think when they partner. met, he was twenty-eight and she was thirty-six. Yeah. So, but in many ways, the junior partner at that stage, right. in, both in their sort of fame, but also in in, in age. Yeah. Um, so, did you have a sense, even as a kid, just before it happened for Angus, that what he did and 
how he might be famous? Did you have a sense of like Angus wanting to be more famous and and it coming or not coming, whatever? I have a I have a very clear recollection of him being in an advert for. Um, uh, I always think it's a cereal, but I'm not sure it was a cereal. But in the advert, he had to come. Uh, that's right. It was for Crunchy Nut Corn Flakes. Right. And he was on, a, for some reason, on a boat being chased around a boat. And eventually his head pops out of a funnel and he's drinking a bowl of, uh, he's eating a bowl of Crunchy Nut Corn Flakes. Right. So I definitely knew he was a performer yeah. on TV. Yeah. Also, I, when I was in the kind of mid to late 80s, I started doing some voiceovers with him so they when you were nine or when something. i was like eight or nine i did a vo- my first ever voiceover i did for the stock exchange and we went into london together and i had to say a line and i didn't wow. i don't have a recollection of knowing what i was doing but right. just knowing that it was kind of cool and i was yeah. taking a day off school yeah um a voiceover for the stock exchange yeah, right. it was a voiceover okay. for the stock exchange for capitalism well basically. yeah you know yeah. i was very politically aware <laughs> yeah. at the time yeah um and just that and just that kind of knowledge that not every kid got to do this stuff. Sure. And not every kid saw their stepdad sure, on TV. Sure, but what I'm interested in um, is whether or not you were old enough to understand, okay, my stepdad, or the mm. person I see as my stepdad, works in this career. Um, he, you know, he's sort of famous, mm. but he's not that famous. And then how it felt when he suddenly became super famous. Yeah, no, I don't. Do you know what? I really don't. And and I think there's a, I, I, I think there's an element of... Um, I wasn't the smartest tool in the box by any means, but also I just didn't give it a lot of thought. Um, so I, it, my recollections are mainly in moments. So like I said, watching that advert or knowing that we were pressing Redial to try and win him a comedy award, these kind of visual moments. And I don't know whether that's that I didn't realise it at the time or that I blocked a lot out, if I'm totally honest. Right. But Why would um, you block it out? Oh, because... Because they split up. Yeah, because when they broke... There's definitely... There's a very long... There's a very long period of time around when they broke up that I have no recollection of because... Okay, can um, we fill that in a bit? Yeah. And I mean, obviously, these are it's your mum and we're both very friendly with Angus. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's up to you to some I'm extent. very friendly with my mum as well. <laughs> yeah, although, you know, can one ever be friends with one's parents? <laughs> That's a whole other question. Yeah. Um, Another podcast. My mum's dead and my dad's got dementia, so I'm able to talk about that very freely. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so... Talk about that, but anyway, I, I, I mean, Angus... About them breaking up. Well, Angus, as we know, I think Angus will be OK with saying this, has had a number of, you know, difficult moments with the British press hmm. uh, and his private life, and he's probably more well-known for the scandal that affected him um, later on when he was with hmm. uh, someone else we know called Lisa Mayer um, when he got sacked from Have I Got News For You, but he had had this previous scandal mm-hmm. involving your mum, so most people m- maybe don't know that. Yeah, so... My mum, uh, Angus left my mum in uh, 1993, about February 1993, and they'd been together for nine years. And they obviously owned this big house together. And over the time that they'd lived in this house, as you kind of alluded to, uh, Angus got a lot more famous and a lot more rich. Mm. And so uh, during that period of time, he put in a swimming pool and a tennis court into the house. And, you know, we had some amazing times, incredibly fortunate um, upbringing and, and, you know, having loads of parties and having friends around. Uh, and they had these big, lavish kind of showbiz parties as well. I think Angus very, you know, enjoyed that side of it, absolutely. Mm. Um, and then in... in 19- and still does. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, I know he does, yeah. Mm. I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> That's completely bizarre. Um, me too. I think I, that probably <laughs> comes from there as well, I would have thought. Um, and then in 1993, he left. And I'd say, honestly, I don't remember a thing about it. Right. Um, 
but I have a lot of evidence of what happened based on, you know, what my mum tells me and also newspaper clippings and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you this know... This was a time, sorry, this yeah. was a time when, you know, before the internet, the tabloid press were enormously powerful mm -hmm. and they completely lived on celebrity scandal. Mm -hmm. You know, there's less of it now since Leveson. Uh, I mean, obviously, they still do do it and the whole Harry and Meghan thing, to some extent, is a sort of throwback to that, even though it doesn't involve adultery or anything, but it's all still about the privacy of a famous couple. Um, but every week in the news of the world or whatever, mm. there would be some footballer, some TV star has had an affair, is leaving their wife, blah, yeah. blah, blah. That's how they sell their newspapers. Yeah, that's how they sell their newspapers. Mm -hmm. So it was part of that, really. Angus was... Yeah. So, well, so what I can say is, and, and you know, I want to stress again, uh, actually, I've only stressed this about my dad, but I'd say it about Angus as well. Angus and I have never had a serious conversation either. Like, Angus and I get on really, really well. I, um, I know he cares about me a great mm. deal. He's been very excellent to me throughout the time that we've, you know, been back in touch, which is probably nigh on, you know, 15, nearly 20 years now. Um, but we've never had a conversation about my mum. We've never had a conversation about this time, and I doubt we ever will. I, he's just of that generation where he doesn't open up in that way. I have had a number of... Uh, <laughs> when, when things are very bad with Angus, mm. uh, and I probably won't go into this in depth, mm. I had a number of quite heavy conversations with Angus where I felt this is not usual for Angus right. to be vulnerable. Um, but I think one thing which you alluded to there, which is part of that, is since you got back in touch. Mm. So there was a point where you were estranged from Angus? Yeah, so uh, they broke up in 1993 and then there was a two-year period of um, court, basically court lawyer stuff oh, right. to do with the house. And it was to do with... It, it was basically to do with, um, as far as I know and as far as from what I've seen, it was to do with what we talked about before, which is when they met, my mum was... Uh, a lot more successful and then when they broke up Angus was a lot more successful and actually my mum by that point had got nodules on her throat and wasn't earning any money and only had what she had in the house with which to then bring us us up and live her life after that so there was two years of that and then so when he left from from 1993 when he left my mum I have to say was always very consistent in saying to me you know you need to keep your relationship with Angus it's very important You, but she you know, was angry with Angus oh Absolutely, but but I'm. I'll start with this, which is okay. at no point did she say anything other than you know I want you to stay in touch with Angus. I, I want it, and the reason I know that is because the feeling I really remember from that period is um, a mix of I'm not sure I believe you, and I know if I see him or get in touch with him, uh, you'll ask me about that. Right, and I felt incredibly uncomfortable in those things, so it felt easier to not really be in touch with him. And I think um, I think there were maybe two or three occasions where we. We, he sent me a birthday present or I went to a football match with him but it very quickly kind of became an estrangement yeah we didn't well, see each other a, there's a, surely one other big problem uh, and tell me if you want to edit this out but I'm going to mention it anyway wasn't your mum actually talking to the press yeah so what so after he left uh, and after the after he left uh, and like I said you know I've only really got one side of the story on this but basically um, it became a matter of how much percentage of the house does my mum get and how much does Angus get. And uh, there was a fight about that, basically. And over that period of time, as far as I'm aware, my mum 
was being offered a lot. Of, I mean, I know that we had paparazzi, if you want to call it that, outside our house yeah. all the time. We had journalists calling us up all the time, um, speaking to my brother if he answered the phone, all of this kind of stuff. And my mum being offered a lot of money by the press to tell her side of the story. And she did. Which she eventually did. Now, her argument, you know, and, and when she did do that, we lost all of our friends and all of our family, all of, all of the people on that side or, or mutual friends of Angus and my mum's, we never spoke to again. Right. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So it was, you know, and she was aware really that was going to happen. Not, because, not in a really prurient way, because this is a podcast about fame and about growing mm-hmm. up around fame. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how, because I haven't listened to all the episodes, but one thing about fame is it involves quite a lot of time playing out in public incredibly difficult stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's happened to you. Yeah. You know, you've really been as a child yeah. or teenager at the centre of a public huge thing really yeah. between the two people at the time that yeah. you were, I was you, 10 I was 10 right, I wasn't so, even I wasn't even a teenager which yeah. I think would have I don't well, I but don't that know. thing which would now be called hashtag team Stephanie hashtag team Angus of like yeah. the public deciding you know that this is a battle yeah you're you're sort of obviously you're with your mum, but at the mm. same time you're kind of in the middle of that. So when you say Angus wanted to take me to mm. football or Angus wanted to do that, you know, it isn't just you know I've stood up with your mum. It's everyone knows. No, but but what I'd say is during that period, whilst we were you know during the three or four occasions where he would send me a birthday present or I go to a football match, that was in the two years since. So there was two years from when he left to when, or a year and a half to when then my mum sold the story, right. which was a three-day story in the sun. Right, okay. Actually. Yeah. And there were lots and lots of stories in the kind of 18 months before that that were either a friend of or mm. a friend of Angus's says or a friend of Stephanie says she's doing fine now or whatever. But when she actually properly sold her story for a lot of money, 
uh, that was kind of 18 months on. And then what happened the moment she did that, and I'm not talking this with about this with any pride at all, I talk about this in terms of the way she describes it, which is necessity, financial mm. necessity, because mm. she couldn't afford a lawyer. She wasn't mm. earning any money. Mm. And it was being dug out until a potential court case of if you can, you know, the way she tells it is, unless I go to court, I'm going to have to accept giving away 50% of this house, which is every bit of money I have, when actually mm. I put in right. a much bigger chunk. Yeah, I don't think on this podcast that you need to defend your mum's decisions what I'm interested in is how it felt for you mm. to be in that situation did your mum say to you for example when she decided to sell the story okay I'm going to do this we no. need the money it, people might mention it to you at no. school and you know yeah. be prepared I, this, this is where it comes down to a bit of the fact that I think I was a little bit too young and what I blocked out. But what I know, my bro- my brother, who was 13 at the time, was really across all of it and hated every part of it and wanted nothing to do with any of it. And, and it was a real, it was real, real problems mm. because he hated every bit of publicity that was happening and, and uh, he was a lot more affected by it than me. Or if I was affected by it, I don't remember so much. What I know is in in hindsight, it's a really difficult situation to look back on and see and I I you know we have all of that stuff and I've gone through all of that stuff and it's very very difficult because you know you feel a, a loyalty I feel a loyalty to my mother absolutely and I was present for all of that and I saw exactly how hard that time was for her but also you know it's like I think if I if I totally judged my dad on some of his behavior or Angus on what happened around that time to some degree then I just, you know, it's like I'd never speak to a man again. Did your dad come back at all during that difficult time to, <coughs> to help you rather than your mum? Did, did he no. speak to you? No. no sign. Well, he, well, we, me and my dad and my brother and my dad had, you know, we saw him once a fortnight at the weekends. That's how it worked, and we never talked about anything serious. But that's like amazing, that. isn't it? I mean, it's as amazing now. <coughs> Sorry, it's amazing now. To think that you know this was happening. Essentially, your stepdad had left your stepmom, and it was all in the papers. Hmm. You're ten. It's really complicated, hmm. and your dad doesn't say, "Look, do you want to come stay with me for a bit, or let's talk about it?" You know. I think the reality of of it was that when my dad, when my mum met Angus, my dad was really jealous. Right. And so there was probably a little bit of "fuck you" when it all went to shit. Yeah, but not what at you. Fine, I understand that he might think "fuck you" to Stephanie, mm. but you're his son. Shouldn't he think I need to yeah. protect my son in this situation? But 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 that's where I'd say he's my, a negligent dad. Well, I, <laughs> that's why I'd say he's just the kind of dad who's more into being your friend than your dad. Yeah. Um, okay. So we, I mean, there's so much to talk about. It's really really interesting. You are quite again. ironic about Angus being your dad. You sometimes say to me, it's always me and dad in an inverted commas right. way. I can, I've got a vague memory of you possibly trying to get him to pass you and calling him dad in an ironic way. Uh, <laughs> do you feel that he is your... How much of a father is he in uh, your I think emotion? The, I think the reality is I have, no, I, I have no feeling towards anyone that you would probably have towards your father. I don't, have a, I don't feel that natural bond to either my father or Angus. Um, okay, but but I think Angus. I'll be honest with you. I think Angus would be sad to hear that. 
I think. Yeah, but I... Because I think he definitely feels it towards but you. But I'd be shocked if he'd felt surprised. Because I don't know. Well, you say you have never spoken to him, because this is the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you obviously have spoken to him, and it's clear to me from seeing you at the curry that we have every <laughs> Tuesday night after the football, you get on very well yeah. with him. Mm. But one of the things about Angus, who I think I think I'm, I think it's important to say this as well, by the way, because obviously he, he does come out of the stuff with your mum as something of the villain of that situation. And I'm an inc- intensely unjudgmental person mm. about certainly about any form of misdemeanor of that sort. Yeah. Well, I think we are all flawed human beings yes, and whatever. Uh, but what I would say is that Angus is someone who is a, a very nice bloke, but as I say, quite reserved, and he definitely shows more emotion when he talks about you, indeed when he looks at you, uh, than he does about most things. There's a sort mm. of sense of sort of softness and, for want of a better word, mm. tenderness that he shows towards you. That he also shows towards Isaac, his, yeah. <laughs> I should say. Who's his, a lovely, lovely a lo- boy and a, and a brilliant footballer. <laughs> a brilliant footballer yeah. and a lovely boy. Yeah. Uh, and wants to be an actor and also wants to be famous. Yeah. So clearly growing up around fame doesn't put oh, many and, people and, off. And hopefully soon enough he'll become a, a guest on this podcast. Yeah, he should. But yeah. I mean, although that would be a lot, lot of talking about Angus Deaton on this podcast. <laughs> uh, but... Um, <laughs> What what would happen, do you think? Could you have the conversation? Look, we need to talk at some point about my mum. Would he just say, no, I don't want to? Would you get through that? <laughs> it's so far away from the conversations we have that I think... It, I mean, other than the fact that he will listen to this podcast. Yeah. I think other than that, I just don't... I don't see that it would necessarily bring either of us... I, I don't the way I would imagine it, and I'd be very happy to be proven wrong, is I don't think um, I don't think Angus looks upon those times in the same way that I do, or that, and certainly not the way that my mum did, and therefore that I was party to, and therefore you know I think there's probably an element of, like I said before, private life should remain private, and I agree with that to some degree, but I also know that sometimes. Um, situations necessitate other other things, and I think both of them, frankly, could have behaved in a much more mature situation. Um, I just think at the time it was probably a lot easier for Angus than it was for my mum, and she was under a lot of pressure. And I, you know, I feel loyalty towards her because of that. But if I were to say to, I, I genuinely feel if I say to Angus, let's talk about my mum. I don't, I don't see why. I, I don't think he would see any benefit in it. But it be, I mean, I don't know whether you might not feel any need to either, but it would be for your benefit. That would be the thing is, you know, if you do have unresolved stuff mm. as a result of that, you do say, I have no memory of it, which suggests to me like maybe it was blocked out because it was painful. Yeah. Then it's you being heard rather than him. If you yeah, see but I mean. I'd also argue, I, you know, I'd also argue that if if Angus were interested in that side of my therapeutic improvement, then why wouldn't he have tried to do that 18 years ago? Now, it's interesting you say that. You see, I, I would say if I was your therapist, I'd say stop talking about Angus. It's your <laughs> thing and you yeah. should be able to go to him and say, look, I don't care if you don't want to talk about this. Well, I do, I'm, but maybe you don't. I'm also, I'm also non-confrontational. Yeah. And I fear confrontation uh, to the point where that, that Jamie Carragher versus uh, Roy Keane thing, right. thing the other day actually scared me and reminded <laughs> me of my childhood. Okay. Um, well, but, that's why you need to sort it out, Barney. But let me, let's move on to... But I, I do think this podcast actually for me is right. a, a, a small form of that thing so if if anything from this led to that down the line then great but i i'm also um a, a bit afraid of the thought of that as well because obviously that that is then in reality hearing the other side of the story which isn't always going to be comfortable either because i've grown up with one side of i've grown up with my mum on my own 
or on her own. No, so, I totally get so, that. So, so but I, am, but I think what the value of it would be, again, you see, you're putting it all onto him. The value of it would be you expressing to him how it felt or your sense of how it felt and what it might have done at the time to him. Mm. And he doesn't even have to say anything, maybe. You know, it's just like you perhaps need to express that. But hey, yeah. you know, if Angus not... is going to be listening to this, I, I think we're getting into a very complicated area <laughs> I'm not uh, for, sure... for a bloke that we play and, football with, have courage yeah. with. And and who I care about a lot. I should, you know, I want to reiterate that. But also I'd say I'm not sure I have enough memory or feeling, genuine feeling towards those times that I'd be able to say, and it made me feel like this, and it made me feel like that. I just know from hindsight of, and from stuff I don't know and stuff I've been told, that it was a very difficult time. Okay, so... It is a podcast about fame, mm. not just about, um, you know... <laughs> a famous person. No, not just about, about the anguish of growing up around fame. Um, and so you are someone who is, you know, you, you, you've been involved in, you know, you've been done stand-up, mm-hmm. you've done, obviously, podcasts, I've written with you, mm-hmm. you've, we've created a radio show together. So, you, you know, you work in the business. Yeah. Do you think... That that is something that you, as a result of the way you're growing up, or would you just be interested in it anyway, or what? Yeah, I think I think, uh, and I spoke to my brother about this as well the other day, and he said he thinks he became a musician because he wanted to be famous, and it took, and that's the first time he's ever said that to me. Right, and and um, so I just think your, it, well, no, I don't know. Your brother is in a band called Catch. Yeah. And I, I don't know Catch. So Catch were only the band that Busted, that busted could have been. Oh, really? <laughs> like they were a, my brother's singer-songwriter, and when he was in like 1997 or 1996, he signed a huge uh, record deal with Virgin, and they were very hyped. Uh, he's a singer-songwriter, but surrounded himself with, uh, with surrounded himself with two musicians, and they had a, a song that got to like number. They were on top of the pops. They got to number 23 in the charts, and then kind of Virgin slightly lost interest. Mm. Um, but he's a very talented musician uh, in answer to your question it's taken it's genuinely taken me about the reason the podcast happens now has happened now is because it's taken me about 38 years to be able to talk openly about my own feelings on this stuff and i think the reality is that i saw angus realistically probably mostly because of what you know how every week i'd watch have i got news for you and i try and think of jokes for the opening picture round and stuff like that and watched him present on that i think i grew up thinking i want a piece of that i genuinely do and but then after they broke up and it was all very difficult and i saw how it affected my mom and whatever i think i then spent 25 years trying to pretend i didn't right um yeah i mean it's about that as complicated a uh you know baptism of fire around fame as you could have had mm. because you will yeah you will have had you know experience of this immense success mm. and thinking that and particularly around a guy who was funny at mm. home so you think like okay this is great he's funny and now he's funny on the telly and part of what you've just said i think will also be about being a child and wanting to please your dad, dad in inverted commas. Mm. So, like, I want my dad to know I could write these jokes and I could help yeah. uh, him be a funny guy on the telly. And then, before that really, you get a chance to do that properly, yeah. he's gone and it's really bad and whatever. Yeah. So I think the, the idea of you being someone who might be conflicted mm. around fame, I mean, you're about perfect <laughs> for it in a way. But, I mean, are you conflicted about it? Uh I so well then during that period when I became you know early twenties after university I used to say things I used to say things like you know I got into TV and then into television development so developing ideas for TV for the BBC and MTV and I 
I knew that I, and I also worked for Children's BBC, and I did a little bit of on-screen stuff for them, a tiny little bit, and I knew I liked it and I wanted to do it, but I had no, I honestly had nobody telling me I was any good at it, and right. I had nobody telling me I was any good at anything except for my mum, whose angle was always, "You're brilliant at everything," and you don't right. believe, you don't believe her because she has to say that because you're. Mm. So I think. Can I say I never had that from either of my parents? Yeah. Yeah. Neither of my parents have ever. In fact, in my show, my family not the sitcom. Yeah. You know, there's a moment. Where having created them both as a sort of extreme, again without any judgment, but parents who really weren't parenting, uh, my mum because she was having affairs, because my dad just because he's an incredibly sweary bloke, I say that I find th- I found this footage of my dad, which I hadn't expected to see, many years after the event at Wembley Arena, because there was a TV documentary about me and Rod yeah. Newman at Wembley Arena, in which he comes and says, you know you were superb and it made me cry when I saw it because not just because it was my dad saying that but because by then I had totally an image of my dad never saying anything Mm. like that and you create histories around people and to be honest most of the time he really wasn't like that Mm. but the idea that he did say it once made me think oh fuck maybe I've got him wrong you know yeah but you you to me out of everyone I've ever met have the most self-belief or at least the most outward self-belief a lack of lack of self-doubt So where do you think that came from? If, if it wasn't from your parents, did it come from your intellect or at school, knowing that you were very, very, very clever and got mm. good grades and stuff like that? Because the flip for me is that I wasn't very good at school. Mm. I loved sport. I played sport a lot. But n- I never even felt like anyone ever told me I was that good at sport. But I think I was pretty good at it. Mm. Yeah, but, you're, but good. Nobody you're good was, at football. Yeah, yeah but yeah. nobody was telling me. So uh, all I'm saying is that in hindsight, I kind of wish I'd had... I feel like if I, you know, I feel a little bit like, and I'm not saying I would swap this because actually Angus and my mum together were very unhappy. I have to say they had some big rows and mm. I've got some quite a lot of memories of that. Mm. But I do kind of sometimes think, oh, if he'd stayed till I was like 18 or 21 or something, maybe I would have had more opportunities to work out who I was or yeah. what I could do. But yeah, I, I also, I know that not everyone gets told by their parents what they're good at and what they're not good at. But I kind of, I do think a lot about that. But, yeah. I, but I envy your self-belief. Definitely. Well, my self-belief, but to be honest with you, it's kind of weird self-belief because um, I think my self-belief really comes, well, it partly comes from, yeah, I'm very intellectually secure. Mm. But, uh, although I think my brain is starting to atrophy as I get older. But uh, I think that, that there's another thing which I bang on a lot, which is sort of important in this podcast maybe, which is honesty. I bang on about that mm. a lot. Uh, and honesty at some level isn't just about not lying, but it's also about knowing who you are. And something, I think the reason that I am confident is I, for some reason, have known who I am from a really early age. Um, And that might be partly because I had this weird upbringing where my mum completely was making up who she was, but I had this dad who was ultra male, no-nonsense, fuck off, blah, blah, blah. And somewhere in that combination, I thought, I'm, I'm going to always never swerve one iota away from myself. And actually, part of that is a weird type of confidence because I know, for example, that I'm a really limited performer. I'm only good at one thing, really, on stage, and that is being myself, which is actually really hard to be for a lot mm. of people. But I know I'm good at that, mm. and that involves me thinking, I can't even do an accent. Like, most comedians no. can do an accent. I can't do accents no, and the I. reason I can't do accents is partly just because I'm you know have a shit voice box but also I feel like now this isn't me this isn't me talking now and that's a weird slightly OCD thing yeah. but it actually is part of the confidence because it's like I always think I know what I want to say because I'm not trying to create another persona which a lot of people do yeah. I think um, to try and get away from and to hide who they are yeah no I, yeah. I, I never want to do that and no. it's to do with the honesty that's very thing. fortunate I, I think. I'm, I'm so I'm like really out the closet about who I am all the fucking time mm. and, and fame hasn't changed the thing about me and fame, if you were interviewing me about fame, I would say fame has made no difference to that. And weird, that's weird because it changes most people. But I mean, 
Um, but I think, so taking myself, I, I think I'm not even sure if I know who I am now, right? And I'm 39. And I'd say I'm just now finally getting to grips, you know, if we take relationships as an example. I'm the only person I know my age who isn't married or have kids or pretty much out of my peer group is what I'm talking about. And I think I'm only now starting to get to grips with the fact that I have to be incredibly honest to myself and to everyone to allow myself to stop feeling guilty about the fact that I'm making, you know, in the past I've made women who I've been in relationships with feel the same way that my mum felt back then. Do you know what I mean? So it's like... Well, that would... That would concur with what people say about people wanting for some reason to reproduce what they know even if what they know is yeah. toxic yeah you know um and i've talked quite a lot in this podcast about you know not fe- the fact that i've you know i ask people how they feel growing up around fame has affected their personal relationships and for me i'm not sure i think a, a, a romantic relationship is a relationship unless it's really dramatic Right. Unless it's full of drama, full of big, toxic... Like on Crossroads. ...rows, like, full of... Exactly. Full of passive aggression, full of terrible sets. Right, OK. That's really interesting. OK. I mean, one thing that really interests me about all that is another thing about, about my life is that I always think of it as very non-fame. So I always think one of the weird things about me becoming famous mm. is that I do know quite a lot of people who had a sort of one toe in the door of fame. Their parents were blah, blah, blah. Like I know the Corrans and whatever. Mm. Uh, what, in Dolly's Hill... Not in enough no- to make them do my fucking podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, I asked them. <laughs> I know, they said I know. no. But in, in Dolly's Hill in 1973, you know, it felt so far away from fame. I got from my bar mitzvah an electric guitar, a shit electric guitar. It was sort of 50 quid, Stratocaster copy. But my mate, a guy called David Price at my primary school, no, not my, it must have been my secondary school because it's 13, didn't believe that I had an electric guitar. He just thought, no one I know in my world has mm. an electric guitar. That's David Bowie's world. Mm. And I, I understand that. It felt like it was in the TV and it was that was a wall mm-hmm. between us and there. And so it surprises me still that I am in that world, because yeah. I really didn't come from it in, in any way. Whereas you yeah. did kind of come well, there from was, it. Well, when I was born, there was a piece with a picture of me in the Sunday in the Daily Mirror. Yeah, a Steph's number one smash was right. the headline. Nothing and, about you being born with a smile on your face. No, and <laughs> I got, oh, possibly, possibly in the, in the sub copy. And then... Um, and I got a present for my birth from Alvin Stardust. <laughs> oh, that is so fantastic. So, <laughs> so, okay, so can, can I ask you something which might be difficult, but mm. I'm going to ask you anyway. Mm. You are not famous, probably. No. So how much does that eat away at you? I mean, obviously, it eats away at anyone, mm. including myself, when I think, like, oh, I'm not as famous as I was, and I, you know, my whole show about fame included that and, stuff, that and whatever. Yeah. But also part of my extreme honesty meant that I thought, no, I'm fine with saying that, and I'll see where it goes. Yeah. Uh, and that was a good show, I think. But forgetting about how it might provide material or whatever, so it, absolutely anyone who's in the business who is not as famous as they would like to be is eaten up by it. So... Mm. But you are not, mm. right? You, you've had a lot of things that you've done that have been good, mm. but you're not a well-known person. No. So do you think that that pisses you off because it pisses everyone off just because it does? Or mm. do you think there's an extra spin as a result of your childhood? There are a couple of things. I w- there are a couple of things. Um, I think I have a healthy relationship with my career, which is um, I have an inner feeling of it's going to be okay right right and i think that probably comes from my privilege to be honest yeah Uh, and it's not a feeling that most people have i um, am a happy freelancer even when i'm not earning money i feel more able to create when i'm being freelance and i feel like when i create stuff that i'm passionate about that is more likely to earn me money further along the line than 
for instance, last year when I was doing you know a full time proper job for a, a mark an advertising company, and I just felt totally non creative. Um, fame, I, I've I actually genuinely feel a little bit afraid of how I would react mentally if I was famous. Mm. I think I'd really struggle. I'd be interested to hear how you deal with it, but I'm I would be I. I feel like I would struggle if I was walking down the street and people were looking at me and I was unsure as to why they were looking at me. I think I mentioned this with um, Nicola Wren, Chris Martin's sister as well, and we talked a little bit about it. Um, I think, to some degree, I think because of how I've grown up and my relationship with Angus or people I've met like you and, and other people through him, I feel like I've enjoyed quite a lot of the trappings of fame mm. without ever needing to be famous, so I see that as a positive. But if if a magic wand could be waved... And mm. you were famous. Forget forget the joy of doing the job. So I'm not talking about yeah. oh, a magic wand could be waved and you've got your own TV show and that's great because you want to write a brilliant sitcom or whatever. Yeah. That's that's just the, the art. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the other thing. Mm. So if a wand could be waved and, yes, everyone knows who you are, you're on you know you're in all the papers you're on lots of websites people are talking about you on social media yeah. often now i mean that's another thing like yeah. things when angus was doing all this when you were growing up there was a lot of shit around fame now there's a hundred more things yeah. that you have Awful. to deal with Awful. yeah and 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 for everyone who might think that you're great or that your work is good or whatever there's 200 people who think you're lawrence fox <laughs> yeah think you're or just really fucking hate you yeah you know uh, so i'm i'm going to ask the question again would you wave that wand I'd, I'd love to. I'd, you're taking away the bit that excites me, which is the success and the plaudits of your peer group. Yeah, that would excite me. But really, but this podcast is about fame. Yeah. So that's why I have to ask that question because yeah, everyone wants to like do great work. Yeah. And I'm uh, genuinely torn by it. I'm genuinely torn. I think about it a lot. I do. I love attention. I love talking about myself. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to admit that, but I like, I like the life that I that I've led. Um, would I like to be famous? Probably, but am I scared of the thought of it? Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, I mean, there's a way of answering the question, which is, you know, you're a writer and a comedian and you create ideas or whatever, mm. but let's say you could go into a reality show, yeah. which you probably could. I don't know which no, one it is I don't now. Think well, so. well, you certainly could have done a while back. Yeah. Um, when I was more toned. I could when you were on more Love toned, Island. yeah. I can't see you in Love <laughs> Island now unless they change the format. But... <laughs> If you if there was a reality show that you could go on and become famous that way, would you do that? No, but if I but but I sometimes regret not sticking at stand up long enough to potentially improve to a point where now a lot of my peers who I grew up doing open mic with are like Tez Ilias, Romesh, Angela Barnes, who are now uh, Lou Sanders, who are now borderline getting famous, especially mm. Romesh, for example. Mm. I mean, he was much much better than me, I have to say, mm. as as were all of them to uh, to say that, but. I think I could potentially have got somewhere, and I kind of regret that a little bit. But I think that's more because I would have liked to be appreciated by my peer group. I really genuinely think that. For a lot of years, I think I would have uh, said that and not believed it. For a long time, I used to say, oh, I only do stand-up because I want to become a better writer. But it wasn't true. I was doing stand-up because I wanted to get people to laugh at me. And, yeah, of course, and, and of course. Me I, mean, you know, I mean, I say in my new show, I say, because there's a point where I show some really horrible things about me on Twitter, and I talk about, like, you know, what's it doing to me psychologically, and then I say, why am I on Twitter? And I talk about various different reasons, but well, one of the things I say is it feeds a narcissistic mm. need in me to have an audience at all times. Mm-hmm. And that's clearly in there, and mm. I, you know, I think I might as well just accept that yeah. about me, and maybe that's something to do with the fact that both my parents were not very noticing of me, mm. you know, and they definitely weren't they, they were just parents who didn't do that and to, to some extent my whole 
if I'm going to psychoanalyse myself, I've always thought I, the reason I want to be so me and yeah. telling people about me is because my parents weren't listening. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely have those traits. The best example of, of my slight narcissism I can think of is when I, a couple of years ago, I was glassed in the face and I, uh, you know, my my face was hanging open because... Yeah, but you decided to make that into a podcast. You see, that's one of the things that's fascinating. Well, yeah, but, but even before that, we can go on to that. Sorry. Is... I was at the bus stop having run across the road with my face hanging open and I was enjoying the attention. I know I was in, I was in shock, but I was enjoying the attention I was getting from these strangers. Right. And I enjoyed the attention I then got from the police and the ambulance who came. And even when I was being stitched up and being told you'd have a scar on your face for the rest of your life, I, there, was a big, there was a part of me that was like, I'm strangely enjoying this. I'm trying to make this person laugh. Right. Okay. And, it, and it's kind of an... That's I, interesting. I mean, I wonder if that might be the same... In a conflicted way, because quite a lot of people would also not like to be bottled in the face. No, I don't. I wonder if within I, the, <laughs> oh, shit, I've been bottled in the face, this is terrible, everyone might quite enjoy the drama of it. I don't know. But I think maybe you more, because, as you say, you like drama as a result. Yeah, of I, I, remember, your... I definitely remember thinking there's a weird part of me enjoying this and then the over-anal- uh, the over-analyst, uh, over-analysis that I was doing at the same time being like, I can't believe you're thinking you're enjoying this. But you did do a podcast about it. I did. A, I made a podcast pilot as a kind of drama about what happened that night, and I wanted to make a series about it. Yeah, because yeah. because it's interesting because uh, it happened. A friend of mine did it, someone I'd known for twenty years, and there's a there was an element of that that I found interesting, and also how little I knew about the um, the the system. That yeah, I but also it's an instinct court. in you, isn't it, to try and make something to create. To create and yeah. to make comedy, make story. Yeah, uh, what that wasn't going to be you? a comedy. Though. Well, not comedy, but make mm. story out of it. Make something that can be heard, have an audience. Yeah, you know, and all that. Yeah, I'm always, I'm constantly looking for, for ways to create and and make my career better by creating stuff. That's the only thing that the only thing that makes me happy at the end of the day is if I achieved something and made something. Mm. And it's taken me a long time to realise that as well because I'm I'm inherently lazy. There are three questions at the end of this that I think are worth asking you. Good. Might be sort of fairly quick fire mm. ones. Is that okay? Yeah. Must be good format. Must be heading heading towards the end. Is there anything you've always wanted to say to your parents or Angus but have never felt able to? We've kind of covered that <laughs> okay, by good. saying you've never spoken to him about your mum. If you could live your life again. Yeah. Without having had famous parents or a famous stepfather, would you prefer that? No, absolutely not. I wouldn't change it. And this is such a... I've said this before to our producer, but this is such an almost famous bingo moment, which mm. is every single every single guest we've had has said, I don't I don't want to seem like I'm ungrateful or mm. I've had a bad life. Mm. And it's like, check your white privilege. But um, yeah. no, I wouldn't I wouldn't change it. I think it's made me who I am. I think I... I think I've caused... I do think I've caused people pain because of it, because of my inability to... Um, create lasting relationships and commit and that kind of stuff but I'm but I'm trying to I think everyone's trying to deal with that and I feel like there are people in life who um are a lot less aware of their own pain causing than I am so I think that's how I justify that but no I wouldn't swap it they're all they you know I think everyone has behaved badly but mostly behaved really well and been great parents to me in different ways would you if you another magic wand, if you could magic a wand and have an Angus and Stephanie mm. stay together, <laughs> would you like that? No, because like I said, it was it. You know, it would. I've never looked back on the relationship with like rose tinted spectacles. I've I remember the rows more than I remember the great times. Okay. Um, Do you want to sing? I was born with a smile on, on my face. You, to take I want me out? you to sing. I was born with a smile on my face. <laughs> well, I don't even know, but I've had four number ones. I can't possibly do that. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie didn't even have a, a single number one. I will do my outro. Uh, David, thank you so much for the interview. Is there anything you'd like to plug? You've got your tour starting on Friday. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know when this podcast goes out. It's going to go out. out on Friday. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I've got a 52-day tour called Trolls Not the Dolls, which is uh, kind of about my relationship with the worst and also at times the best part of social media. Um, uh, so do come and see that. And uh, I, I where, do... where can where are the where are the still tickets available? Uh, well, it's sold out in quite a few places, but any tickets that are available, you can find out on davidbadil.com. And we've just announced a London date, which is Queen Elizabeth Hall oh, on May the sixth. Um, and yeah, I, I, I've done these three shows. I've done uh, all called Not the. That's my brand, my my franchise that no one realizes is, is mine. Uh, my family, Not the sitcom, Fame, Not the musical, and Trolls, as in Not the dolls, Not the plastic dolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the stupid hair but it's not just about me here's a, here's a troll who said something to me and I hey I said something clever back it's quite a lot more than that yeah. it's really about why everyone is so angry yeah. now I haven't seen it but I did see uh, My Family Not the Musical and it was very my Not the Sitcom oh sorry My Family Not the not the Sitcom uh, <laughs> I was about to say how amazing and brilliant it was but I didn't even remember the title <laughs> <laughs> stayed with um, you it was, it was brilliant and uh, you know very well reviewed did you win some awards for that? I was nominated again uh, for an go. Olivier Award, which is a very posh award. It's yeah. a theatrical award to be nominated for, but I lost to a ballet, to a fucking <laughs> ballet. So there we go. Um, so, yeah, definitely go and check out Trolls, Not the Dolls. Uh, and, guys, uh, thank you once again, David. Guys, thank you for listening to this episode of Almost Famous. Please do press the subscribe button. Leave us a comment. Uh, follow us on Instagram, at Almost Famous Podcast, and Twitter, at Pod Almost Famous. And until the next series uh, of Almost Famous, thanks once again. We may well put out some little shorter bonus episodes for you before then but once again thank you for listening and see you next time Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.